it has been three weeks since we've been in First Corinthians, and so I want to do a brief recap to sort of catch us up to speed with what's happening in this portion of Scripture, particularly verses twenty nine or twenty six through the end of the chapter. Paul is using the Corinthians' own experience as evidence to prove what he's been arguing from about verse 18 or verses 17 and 18. Namely, that God's method of salvation, the, the, the method of preaching and the, the message of the gospel has never meant to be, uh, has never been used to be a commendation of man's wisdom or man's attainment. It's always been uh, a means of judgment on man's wisdom and man's attainments. And he made that argument from verse 18 all the way through verse 25. Now in verse 26, he turns to them specifically. And I said before that it was almost as if now he's walked into the, 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 the assembly of the Corinthians and he's pointing his finger at them and he's, he's, he's imploring them to reckon with their own experience. Their own experience proves what he's been teaching. And so now let me read verses 26 through 29 with with that little bit of background. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's, this is God's word on the matter. Now, three weeks ago, we said that in this section, Paul is exhorting the saints in Corinth to first evaluate their own history... Secondly, to appreciate God's sovereignty. And then third, to assimilate God's strategy. Three things that he's doing here. Now, we've already considered that first point about the evaluation of their history and our our own uh, responsibility or the encouragement that comes to us to do the same thing, to evaluate our history. Briefly, with verse 26, he said, Consider your calling, brothers. So he took them back to their entrance into the state of grace and salvation in Christ. That reference to calling was a reference to their effectual calling, that call from God that brings a sinner from death to life. He's saying go back to that point where God first brought you to Himself. And he explains, and they would have been able to reckon with this, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. These were all carnal attainments, that could ultimately be traced back to man, whether birth or something they had acquired after being born. These things would give credit and glory to man. These are the things that their culture would have gloried and boasted in. And he's saying, go back and think. Not many of you had those things, and yet God still saved you. God brought you to Himself. And if they were honest, they would have to say, Paul, you're correct. These things were not what brought us to God. These things played no part in, what, in, in our salvation. And I pointed out that if we would do the same, it's good for us. If we will go back to the early days, go back to who we were before God saved us and how God brought us to Himself, it increases our gratitude. It does away with our tendency to overlook the work of grace. Very often we look and we think, I don't see a whole lot happening. Well, Go back to the beginning. Don't think of sanctification in terms of yesterday versus today. Think of sanctification in terms of five years ago versus today. And and you'll see God is working. He's already been working. And that increases our hope for future grace. If He's done what He has done in three years or five years or ten years, well, think about what He could do in ten more years, in five more years. God doesn't... All, he doesn't have to go back to the beginning every new day, but it's, it's always a, a compiling of grace and, and bringing us to Himself and helping us to grow like we often see in Scripture, the illustration of a tree. A tree doesn't start off each new day as a seed. It starts off where it left off the day before, and there's always 
movement. And that gives us hope. It increases our confidence for those who are still separated from God when we do this because we say, if I was where I was when God saved me, well, then I have no reason to say, well, because they are where they are, God can't save them. That wouldn't make any sense. So it, it gives us confidence for those, and all of that serves to humble us if we will consider our calling. That was the effect that it was meant to have in, in the church in Corinth. They needed to be humbled. So he doesn't just come along and say, humble yourselves. No, he's reasoning with them and helping them to see these various facets that, that they would have been able to uh, verify themselves from their own experience. So then we can pick up with the second point and the exposition at verses 27 and 28. Now, several weeks ago I made a mention about Bible study and how sometimes we feel like I've got a Bible, I, I lack the tools I don't really know how to go about a Bible study. And so what I want to do is walk through these, these two final points. But as I go through that, I'm also going to stop along the way and basically show you what I'm doing, show you how I got where I am, show you that hopefully when you leave you'll say, I can do everything the preacher can do Maybe, per, maybe minus get up in front of everyone and articulate it a certain way. But I don't. I want you to see what I'm doing is very simple. It, it's it's not. Uh, I would say it's not rocket scientist. So, so I'm going to sort of do two things at once. I guess uh, preach a sermon, but also show you how how I got this. So the second way, or the second thing that Paul's doing here with the saints is he's reminding them. Here's my title for point number two: to appreciate God's sovereignty. Now that, that, those three words, appreciate God's sovereignty. For me, that's the, that's the final point. See, that's the, I'll sh but what i got to do is show you why I'm saying that this is what he's trying to do. I've given you the point out front. That's, what I, that's how I would summarize it. Now let me show you why I would say that what Paul's doing in verses 27 and 28 is exhorting them to appreciate God's sovereignty. Why do I say he's doing that? Look at verses 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now I've got a Bible and you've got a Bible. So we're working with the same tools. Now as we read those two verses, 27 and 28, did you notice anything repeated? Hopefully you notice that three times in two verses, Paul said, God chose, God chose, God chose. Okay, anytime you see a repetition like that, whether it's in two verses or whether it's in a chapter of Scripture, a constant repetition of the same things, and we would say, kind of weird to write that way, or this is, this is not how you would want to write a college term paper and be so repetitious. Paul, where's your thesaurus? You say it in different ways. No, the reason that the authors of Scripture do this under the inspiration of the Spirit is to pull us to the point, to show us here's where I want your, your attention to be. So he's clearly emphasizing God chose. So negatively coming out of verse 26, none of the Corinthians had anything in themselves that garnered their salvation. Now, speaking positively, God chose. God chose. God chose. That's what he's trying to emphasize. It is good and necessary for every Christian to consider their calling. This was three weeks ago. It's, it's helpful for us. It's important. It's valuable. But Paul doesn't stop at consider your calling. And we can't stop at consider our calling either. We, we can't stop. In other words, we can't stop with ourselves we must always trace the calling to the caller. We, we must always follow the stream back to its source. Because our tendency is when you say consider your calling, go back to the beginning, our tendency might be to just become, um, I guess it would be navel gazers in a sense. Always looking and thinking about ourselves or maybe even looking back to the former days and ourselves in those days and making unhelpful comparisons. We look back at some of the things that might have happened in the early days of our conversion, our salvation, and 
we might look at things now and we see, well, things are not progressing quite so quickly, quite so dramatically like they used to. And we begin to, to put down our cells. Well, I've lost the fire. I've lost the flame. Well, nowhere in Scripture do we ever see the, the idea that the Christian walk of sanctification is supposed to be the same from start to finish, a blazing fire the entire way. We never see that. For many of us in the early days of our salvation, there are great uh, dramatic and drastic changes. And then that, that plane, as it has risen to its cruising altitude, then it goes into coast. You can put it, It's on autopilot, so to speak. It, it, you, you don't feel the, the pressure and the pull. Very often Christianity is that way. And, and if we think that it's always supposed to be like it was in the beginning, we're always going to be downing ourselves. I've lost something. I've lost the flame. God is... And, and so we have to be careful with that. We can make unhelpful comparisons. We should consider our calling, but in order that we might turn away from ourselves to God. So many of our struggles inside ourselves, outside of ourselves, in the home, in the workplace, in the church, so many of our struggles are because we look at ourselves too much. That's why there has to be balance here. We, we will, some of us, will struggle with a, a lack of assurance of our salvation because we're looking at ourselves too much. Others of us will tend towards pride and haughtiness in our salvation. Why? Because you're looking at yourself too much. The answer in, to both of these extremes is, again, yes, consider your calling and analyze and evaluate, but trace the calling back to the caller. Go back to the source. This is what the Corinthians were doing. They were focused in on themselves, and they had begun to exalt themselves. And so he says, 20, verse 26, consider your calling. You had nothing. But then verse 27, God chose. God chose. God chose. Now, we have thoughts that come into our minds when we hear those two words, God chose. For some people, those are delightful words. For other people, maybe in a, in a, a different kind of Christian tradition, those words are, are, we would say, them's fighting words. But we have thoughts that come into our mind. God chose. We would say, well, it, it, I'm thinking of God making a choice, right? Simple. Hopefully I've not left anybody yet. We're all... Trekking together, God chose, so yeah, God made a choice. Now, if I'm thinking in terms of systematic theology, categories of doctrine, systematized in, in, in categories, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of man, doctrine of sin, doctrine of angels, doctrine of... You're going down the line. You take the biblical data and you put it into these categories and come to conclusions. That's systematic theology. If I'm thinking in terms of systematic theology, I would assume if I'm thinking about God chose, God making a choice, well, I have entered into the realm of the doctrine of God. Did I leave anybody there? God has done something. When we read God chose, I have now entered into a teaching specifically about something God has done. That phrase, God chose, is saying something about God. Now, thinking of God's choice, we know God is eternal. It wasn't like He came to a point where He said, Ah, oh, I think I'll do this. We have to go back into eternity, back into the heart and the will of God in eternity, and we come to what we have come to call the eternal decree. Now, follow me here because that might seem like a big jump from choice to decree, but I'll show you why I would say that. We go back into God's eternal decree. If we use a specific form of sound words, a specific systematic theology like our confession, well, then we would think, okay, God, I know that God's choice, God choosing, is also associated with some other things in our confession like God's decree. Now listen to this. This is from our confession. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to His eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel of His good pleasure and will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of His mere free grace and love, 
without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. Now in that paragraph, still thinking systematically, I went there, I said, yep, right there it says, God, skip a few words, hath chosen. God chose. That seems to be at least a relationship in this chapter on God's decree. The beginning of that chapter says God hath decreed. So the choosing, again confessionally, takes place in the confines of the decree. See how I'm doing that. God chose. God made a choice. My mind just, I'm, again, right now I've just picked up the scent of a, a theological idea. I'm smelling. Okay. I think I get the, the, uh, uh, the, the smell of, of, of choosing, and that leads me sort of to decree, maybe, but I could be wrong. I'm going to go down this trail and see what happens. If I'm wrong, I back up and try another one. But what I've done is I've taken the scriptural language, God chose, God chose, God chose, and I'm asking, what do I already know about that language? I've got things in my mind that I already know. And then I'm following the trail, and I've come out at this point with God's decree. It would seem to say that God chose comes under the subject of God's decree. Now, some people have a problem with saying, well, you shouldn't use the confession to... To, to, to do what I'm doing. Well, I would say everybody is doing that, whether they have a written confession or not. Nobody starts at the beginning of their Bible in Genesis 1-1 every year and it reads, in the beginning God, and says, who are we talking about? I'm confused. Who is this character? No, we, we all are building our own theology in our minds. And we use that. So it, it, I'm, just, I'm just sniffing. Again, just sniffing. Follow me here. We're sniffing. God chose leads me to God's decree. Now, of course, there was no actual decree, as in a, 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 a rattling of the vocal cords in God, and words came out when there was nothing. The Scripture uses the language of decree or declaration to describe the eternal, unchangeable will of God, the, the heart desire of God. In Psalm 2-7, I will tell of the decree. Isaiah 43, 12, I declared and loved and proclaimed. Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning. Isaiah 48, 3, the former things I declared. It's, it's using the language of a king making a proclamation or executive order. might be language that we're more familiar with. A king making some that, that type of a, a decree, a declaration, an order, an ordinance, an edict. That's the language of Scripture. And this is to show that God, the will of God was established as an unbreakable statute or ordinance from eternity. It comes forth from God to be executed by His Word and wisdom, as we've seen in weeks previous. And it encompasses every single thing that would ever take place. We saw that in, in Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning. Or 48.3, the former things I declared of old. So from eternity, he declares everything that will ever come to pass. Not because he knew all things and therefore he declared it, but he declared it or decreed it and that forms the substance of his omniscience. It started in God, God's will, God's decree. Now back to our trails, sniffing, we're hunting this down. If I want to go and see if I'm on the right trail, I go back to our confession, I could ask, does, does anything that we've just seen or said square with our theory about the relationship between choice and decree? Well, going back to that chapter on the decree, God hath decreed all things whatsoever come to pass, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future. That's what I just said. The, the confession agrees with those biblical statements, so it seems like we're still on the right trail. Now... A part of this decree, as it pertains to the ultimate end for which God created the world, was God's will and determination to glorify Himself in the salvation of sinners. God decreed all things, but His heart in that decree was ever toward the salvation of sinners. And therefore, He decreed that He would save a multitude of sinners. Now, what do we call... The decree of God to save some sinners. That word is predestination. God predestined some to be saved. We'll see if we're on the right trail. We'll go back to our confession. 
by the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Sure enough, there it is. It seems like we're, we're, we're following the right trail. Now turn with me, if you will, to Romans 8. Romans 8, 29 and 30. We can confirm what we just saw confessionally with biblical language. We're going back and forth using both of these tools at our disposal. And the rule would be any time the Bible contradicts your trail where you think you're going, stop. The Bible's closed me off. I can't go down that trail anymore. We can have a tendency to impose systematics in certain places, so we have to be careful. Listen to Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, that is His Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Now, I'll stop there. There we have that word predestined, which is literally pro-orizo, and you can hear the word horizon in that term. In other words... God set forth the horizon, the furthest point, beforehand. Follow me there? Before, pro, horizon. Furthest point. God established the end from the beginning. The, 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 he fixed the end from the start. Now notice in what we just read, what was predestined? Verse 29, those whom... He foreknew. He also predestined. Verse 30. Those whom He predestined. That which was predestined was a bunch of whoms, not witches. I've said that before. Whoms, not witches. It does not say that which He foreknew. In other words, a, a plan or an idea. But whom? Individual people. Persons. He predestined People, not just the end for those people. A lot of people will agree with that. No, it says whom? He predestined people. Notice also the end for which they were predestined, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of His Son. So the ultimate end and chief goal of our predestination and salvation is to be made like God's Son, to be made after the image of Christ. In other words, we find out God has predestined some sinners to be saved and ultimately to be made like His Son. And notice what also attends this predestination in verse 30. Those whom He predestined, what did He do? He called. Another reference to the effectual call. So we, in our study, we went from God chose, statement about God, to God's decree, just sort of guessing, sounds like it might be there, it's in the confession, let's, let's chase this down, which includes predestination, Confessionally, well, we go back to the Bible, predestination is there. We find it, this text referencing predestination. We discover that it is sinners who are being predestined. And then in that same context, we have a reference to effectual calling. Well, where have we heard the language of calling before? Verse 26. So when Paul says, consider your calling... His mind goes immediately to God's choice and predestination and those things. Well, that's kind of what we did. And it leads me to believe the way Paul's mind is thinking, we're kind of thinking along with him. There's no way that we can truly consider our calling without turning to see that behind that calling was the predestinating purpose of God. God's heart and will was to save sinners. And He arranged to do that from eternity. He set forth His will in the eternal decree, which encompassed all things. And inside of that decree, in, in, there was the predestination of some to salvation. So hopefully you can see, I know this, the phrase theological drift doesn't sound good. I'm, I'm thinking of a piece of driftwood going down a river. Us and Paul, we're drifting the same direction. Like a calling, choice, predestination, salvation. There's, there's a relationship here. Paul's doing what we're doing. And we're doing what Paul's doing. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 1. Our text says three times, God chose. It doesn't simply say, God chose to save some sinners. 
It says, God chose what is foolish, what is weak, what is low and despised, things that are not. Now, the question we would ask at this point is, what's Paul talking about here? That language, it could be tricky. You might read that and think, I'm not really following where he's going from here. Don't, don't think past it. it it's, it's pretty simple. What did he just make clear in verse 26? Not many of you are wise. You weren't powerful. You weren't of noble birth. Okay? God chose what is foolish. If you're not wise, what are you? Foolish. If you're not powerful, what are you? You're weak. If you're not of noble birth, what are you? You're of low birth. In other words, when he says foolish, weak, low, despised, things that are nothing, that's just people. He's talking about the Corinthians. People. God chose, back to Romans 8, God chose people. God chose whom's. In the predestinating plan of God, He chose individual people who would be the objects of His saving mercy, as we see in Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That word chose is the same word that's used here. God chose us. Now, when we talk about the specific choosing of individuals for salvation, that term is election. Election. The saints of God are called the elect or the chosen ones. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, right along with Romans 8. Paul asks in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen ones? On the last day, we see that God will send out the angels and gather who? His elect from the four corners of the earth, Mark 13, 27. So if we, if we go all the way back into the, into the heart of God, we start with His eternal decree, which encompasses everything. We work forward to the, the saving portion of that decree that we call predestination. The specifics of that predestination we call electing or election of certain individuals to salvation. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. In other words, to, to shorten it, to shorten all of verse 27 and into verse 28, God chose you to be saved. You individuals. That's what he's saying. If you're a Christian, this is what God has done for you. It was His will to save. He purposed to save some. He chose who He would save. He chose you. From eternity. It was His will that you would be saved. He decreed all things, including your eternal salvation. He chose who He would save. It was, it was names that were written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book. Names. Now that, for us here is not very startling. It's not shocking. Let me try to bring it to bear a little more. Going back to your calling. Can you think of some who were not called? Some of you, I think, could name individuals right now who heard the same truths that you heard, who heard the same gospel that you heard, who heard the same outward call from a preacher you heard, and yet you would have to say, by all accounts and the testimony of Scripture, they are this very moment in the torments of hell. For some of you, some of us, it was close friends. For others, it might be extended relatives or co-workers and for others of you you would probably have to say that's true of my own parents or my own siblings we heard the same stuff we sat in the same church we heard the same gospel the same preachers everything went out to us and yet right now they're in hell if we if we would dare to ask why is it that they are in hell and here I am, seated in the assembly of the saints on the Lord's day, worshiping before the Lord, practicing for eternal bliss, 
The only answer that we can give ultimately, in an ultimate sense, is God chose. God chose. Were you smarter than them? Were you more wealthy than them? Was your family more well off than them? Did you just pay a little better attention to the preaching than they did? Did you just happen to understand the the details of theology quicker than they did? You would have to say, nope. God chose. God chose. God chose. Now, this is, again, this is a doctrine that will often get us in trouble with the world or even a great many of those who profess to be Christians. And that's why I say that what Paul's doing with the Corinthians is trying to get them to appreciate God's sovereignty. See, sovereignty is the position that God holds over all things that allows Him the prerogative of choosing and nobody can say, I don't think that was right. Why? He's sovereign. Nobody gets to to move His hand or, or... Ask him or even suggest to him, I think you should have done it a different way. Why? Because he's sovereign. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's sovereign. And like Job, and we'll see this this evening, when we appreciate that truth, we don't push back against it. We don't rise up and puff up our chests. But we say, I know that you can do all things. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And that's what Paul is trying to convey to the Corinthians. They were boasting in men. They were boasting in themselves. They were exalting themselves above one another. And Paul comes back to remind them, God chose, God chose, God chose. Can't you see? So that hopefully as this letter was read in their hearing, they would say, I despise myself for my boasting. And I repent in dust and ashes for my boasting. Because it is all of God. God chose. While many people despise the doctrine of God's sovereignty in election, we, like the Corinthians, should hear Paul saying, you need to appreciate God's sovereignty. Don't depreciate it. Don't deny it. Don't argue with it. But appreciate it. It is good news for God's people. Now, back to verse 27. Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What is, what's foolish in the world? That's you. That's me. Listen. You're not wise according to the world. We're not wise according to the world's standards. In in the world's eyes, you're foolish. In the world's eyes, what you believe, what I believe, is silly at best. Hateful at worst. But it's not wisdom according to worldly standards. When he says, what is weak in the world, what's he talking about? He's talking about you and me. That's us. You're not strong and powerful according to worldly standards. I'm not strong and powerful according to worldly standards. We don't have sway. We don't have clout. We don't have pull in the world. We're not influencers by the world's standards. In the world's eyes, we're we're weak. We're weaklings. We're a, a, a sickly bunch of people. We're the runt of the litter. We're that animal that you would say, it's not worth the effort to keep it alive to have that extra animal. We're weak, puny. That's what he's saying. That's the way the world views the Christian. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Okay, what is, what's he describing when he says low and despised? Who's he talking about? He's talking about us, Christians. The word low means basically insignificant. Despised means just that, disdained. Considered worthless or despicable. Y'all don't hear what, what God says through His apostle about how the world should be viewing the Christian? 
and how we should understand them according to the standards of this present evil age, we are at best not worth considering and at worst hated to be treated with contempt and disgust. Even things that are not, he says, literally the nothings is how it reads. God chose the nothings so that by the reasoning and wisdom of the world, we would have to say there are a great number of people who are stupid, sickly, not worth mentioning, despicable nothings by worldly standards. But guess what? The world doesn't get to choose. They, they, can, they can give their labels or they can say this is how we deem these people to be. God sits in the heavens and laughs. What does the text say? God chose. God chose. God chose. We ought to praise God for His gracious choice. That, that it wasn't left up to the world. It wasn't left up to, to the, the, the masses to decide, how do you feel about these people? God didn't take a, a quorum or ask for a vote. No, God was the voter and the only one who made a choice. It was His choice. Where there were once no believers, God saved some. So that where there is nothing, all of a sudden there's something. Where there were once no churches, well, God plants churches and they flourish around the world. Where there once were no Christians in a particular family, well, God comes and starts a new generation by saving a mom and a dad. And now, all of a sudden, a Christian family takes off. He's, he's bringing things out of nothing, creating things, because this is what God does. And He does that in order to bring to nothing Things that are. In other words, to show the futility and weakness of what the world puts their stock in. The things that the, that the world can build and the world looks at and says, see what all we've done. God says, I make that look as nothing because I can bring something out of nothing. The power resides in God to save His people, to bring His people to Himself. And so we should appreciate these truths, appreciate God's sovereignty. Let's not ever become so high-minded that we feel it necessary to ignore or belittle this great doctrine that is really the, the ever-despised jewel in the crown of robust Calvinism. Boy, we don't wanna, we've moved on past that. Well, that, you, that might be. But don't ever stop and forget God chose. We don't move past that. Not because Calvin was great. He didn't, he didn't invent it. Because the Bible says God chose. God chose. God chose. We, we should not be ashamed of God's sovereign election. People say this makes you haughty and proud. I think the very opposite. It doesn't make us haughty and proud at all. Does this allow any of us to look at something in us as the reason for God's choice? No. It's the exact opposite. Now, if we go back to what he said in verse 26, not many, not many, not many, he never said none. He said not many, which means there might have been some in the church in Corinth who had some sort of worldly attainment. Crispus was a synagogue ruler. Gaius had a house big enough for the church to meet in. Erastus was the city treasurer. But would any of these men be able to say, well, that's, that's probably why God saved me, because my house was big enough and he knew the church needed to have a place to meet, and so he saved me because of my big house. No. God chose. God chose. God chose. And here those men would have sat amongst and in the midst of those people who did not have those attainments. God chose to save those that the world would have casted away, and even if the world would have given them some sort of accreditation... Well, all of that accreditation was thrown to the wind when they counted all of those things as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And they sat here in this assembly. Surely we can appreciate this. Can we, who were not wise, powerful, or noble, can we not appreciate God's sovereign choice? That that's good news? And, and those who had perhaps attained some place in the world, can you also not appreciate God's sovereign choice? That he did not look on those attainments so that if they're all taken away from you in an instant, like they were with Job, you're still his because God chose. 
See, it's in this that God's wisdom and power are made known. This is how He thwarts, confounds uh, the, the wisdom of the world. He shames the world because He calls all types and kinds of people out of the world to Himself and makes us happy in Himself. The world hates that. The world can't stand that. The world with all of its trinkets, ever seeing but, and, and seeking but never attaining, looks at the Christian who very often has nothing that they have, at least nothing in comparison to them, who has joy unspeakable, unshakable, unbreakable, and it makes them furious. And the whole world says, listen, you can't be happy without this and this and this and all these things and until you get to this place and this point. You can't be happy without that. And then they look at the Christians and we say, well, we are eternally happy. Even if all of those things were given and then sucked right back out of our hands, we still have Christ. And that makes them furious. It shows everything that they're laboring and trying to build is really nothing. They can't attain to what they, they profess to have obtained And we have joy and gladness and peace and we don't have anything that they have. It's a condemnation of their whole outlook, their whole worldview. We should appreciate God's sovereign saving activity. That's point number two. Now the third one, which is much shorter. The apostle exhorts them to assimilate God's strategy. To assimilate means to take in, for this, for our purposes, to take in information, to take in ideas, to understand them fully. So he exhorts them to assimilate or to take in and understand the strategy of God that has just been shown. Verse 29 says, So that, why did God do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So now go back to the argument from the beginning. Consider your calling. According to worldly standards, you're weak, you're foolish, you're insignificant, you're nothings. But you are who God chose to save. Now why would God do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's sovereign choice excludes all boasting. All of it. That's what He's trying to get them to see. There can be no boasting in this kingdom. When the saints... Stand before God, whether it's now in spirit, as we know we are always before the face of God, but especially on the final day, there will be no boasting. No boasting. The poor will not be able to say, well, you know, I was really poor, and that's why I'm here. They will not be able to boast in their poverty because... Well, they'll be standing shoulder to shoulder with some rich people. But the rich people will not be able to say, well, it was because I was rich that I got here because they'll be standing shoulder to shoulder with the poor. And there will be no boasting. The ignorant, this is fairly prevalent in our, in our culture here, the ignorant will, be, will not be able to boast in their ignorance. Well, I, I just I didn't know nothing and God saved me. Well, because he's going to stand shoulder to shoulder beside a, a, a very intellectual person. Of great intellect. But that intellectual person will not be able to say, well, it was because I figured it out. Because he's going to stand shoulder to shoulder with the ignorant and, and, and even children. The powerful are going to stand beside the weak and the sickly. Those, hear this, those that we heard of and knew about in the world are going to be swallowed up, as it were, lost in the multitude of those that we never knew, never heard of. There will be no boasting. What did, you, did, did you see my YouTube channel? Well, that's why God saved me. Well, did you see how many conferences I preached? Well, that's why God saved me. There, there will be people there who would say, what's a YouTube? What's a, what do you mean a conference? I, I, don't, I don't understand. I don't know you. No boasting. And what will be our response on that day? Well, negatively here, we'll get to the positive, but negatively, we will not boast. There will be no boasting. As John said in Revelation chapter 7, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Not a word about their intellectual attainments. Not a word about their status as social influencers. Not a word about their birth or their lineage. Or do you know who my mamma is? My papa is his people. And none of that. God and the Lamb. God and the Lamb. They are saying, if I could sum up what they're saying, God chose, God chose, God chose for all of eternity. No boasting, only glorying in what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does this relate to the saints in Corinth? Well, again, they were boasting. And he doesn't just swoop in and say, stop boasting. He brings them back to the cross. He brings them back to God in eternity. And he says, you don't have anything to boast in. Even even later on in, in 2 Corinthians Paul kind of throws himself out there and he's like, well, you know, yeah, yeah, boast in me. I've been beaten this many times and shipwrecked this many times. And that was his glory, that he had not these these great attainments. Their only boast was God. And then we'll see, Lord willing, next week, he sets forth positively what they will do, and that is ultimately boast in the Lord. So for now, we see that the cross turns the world upside down. And by that, I don't mean that it it disrupts the day-to-day movements of our world. What I mean is, when someone comes under the saving influences of God in Christ, through the power of the cross, through the preaching of the gospel, for them, immediately a great reversal takes place. So that what they once valued, they now despise. What they once despised, they now value. What they once said, that's useless, now they say, that's my great treasure. What they once said, this is my great treasure, they say, oh, that's useless. Why do I need that anymore? It's reversed. The value systems of the world and its units of measurement are backwards from the kingdom of Christ. So that where the world says, ignorant, foolish, weak, useless, less than nothing... God says, mine, 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 mine. I chose to shame the way the world thinks and acts. That can't happen if we're all supposed to just get in the same stream and use the same methods to get to to some goal. That doesn't shame. It's backwards as so as to make shameful and foolish the ways of the world. When a man sees this, and he sees that ultimate value is found only in Christ, all of a sudden he tramples what the world prizes, gold and silver. He says, gold and silver. The apostles could say, silver and gold, we don't have any of that. We have Christ. George Swinnick said that a man like this is able to lay his white and yellow earth at the apostles' feet. Silver and gold. White and yellow earth. Lay it down. Selling houses and lands. Lay it down. What what do I need this for? Because things are reversed. It's, It's backwards. What I once treasured, I now say, I don't need this. The cross turns our world upside down. So listen, don't try to fix it. Don't try to reorient yourself as a Christian, yet also seeking after the accreditation and the affirmation and the validation of the world's standards. Don't, don't get in the mindset that says, well, well, I'm a Christian and I can also conduct myself according to the world's metrics and, and systems. It won't work. They're contrary to the ways of God. God's ways are contrary to theirs. God is not trying to permeate the upper echelons of society with Christian influence. He's he's not saving the foolish, the weak, the common people in order to now make us wise and powerful and noble of the earth. And so that the world says, ah, now we see they are wise and powerful and noble. No, it's two completely different ways of thinking. Two different, some would say, kingdoms. God's way in saving and working 
in all the world is meant to thwart human wisdom and human ingenuity so that on the final day, every mouth is stopped. And nobody is able to say, you know what, that actually makes perfect sense. We, we knew that that was the way to do it. We just couldn't actually accomplish it with what we had. No, they're going to say, I thought I, I thought I knew, I heard, now I see. So if we are to boast, I'll read this quote from, from one commentary. Just to sum it up very briefly, human criteria are of no consequence to God. If we are to boast, let us boast in God who has chosen us out of the kingdom of sin and Satan and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Think about how backwards this kingdom is. The king serves the servants. The shepherd dies for the sheep. The Son of God becomes a Son of Man so that sons of men can become sons of God. You've heard that. It's just, it, the more you think about these, these reversals and these things that are so backward to the world, you say, this, this kingdom is... Literally not of this world. It doesn't, it doesn't comport with the ways that we think. So then let's pray that the Lord would continue to transform us. Because if we're honest, we, like the Corinthians, we come into Christ's kingdom. And very often we bring with us the, the residue of, these, of the old kingdom, the old ways of thinking. So we have to pray that God would transform us by renewing our minds according to the principles of His kingdom so that we can seek His kingdom. And everything else, He's going to take care of everything else, but we've got to seek His kingdom. So with that, let's pray and ask God to help us. With, as it pertains to what we just heard, there are a lot of people who would hear, God chose, and they would say, well, if that's the case, well, what's going to be is what's going to be. We have no responsibility in the matter. Well, I... God chose, then I'll believe. And if God didn't choose, I won't believe. But there's nothing that I can do at this point. And again, that is, that is also contrary to Scripture. Because God put forth His Son. God sent His Son. He took flesh to live in our place and to die in our place. And He raised Him from the dead because we are sinners. And there had to be a substitute to satisfy the justice of God in our place. Now, the application of that was never look at what God has done and try to decide and see if you're elect. Never. Never. The application is repent and believe the gospel. I asked my own family last night as I opened up these things, I said, how do you feel? And some would say, that, that's good. And another one said, well, it's good and bad. I said, explain. Well, it's good. It's good that God chooses, but how do we know who God has chosen? I said, that's the wrong question. Believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? Well, I don't know if I believe enough. Well, you, I'll go ahead and tell you, you don't. It's not your belief that saves you. It's God that saves. It's God that saves through what Christ has done. Dwell on that. Meditate upon that, especially as it finds its root in the cross of Christ. And then we'll come back and we'll have communion together.